You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. Later on, Duncan Jarvis talks to Tim Wheeler about dealing with uncertainty in the evidence base for development projects. But before that, the northern India state of Uttar Pradesh has some of the worst health indicators in the country. Maternal mortality is more than 500 per million births, more than half of mothers and children are malnourished, and infant mortality is seven to eight times higher than in the south of the country. To tackle this, the federal government has invested £1.2 billion in the state's National Rural Health Mission, or NRHM. But last year, six years into the scheme, it began to emerge much of the money has disappeared, looted by those meant to be ploughing it into healthcare. Pachaleka Chatterjee is a freelance journalist based in Delhi who investigated the story for the BMJ. She told me what she saw in a district which supposedly benefited from the funds. I must say I was absolutely horrified. I mean, generally India's public health system leaves much to be desired. But what I saw was callousness and corruption. And, and the people who are affected are the poorest of the poor. I went to a primary health center. You have a maternity ward where there's a dog moving around. The bathroom doors were locked. The wash basin, there was no water. There was this uh, woman whom I was speaking to, a young mother. There's a central government scheme which gives cash incentives to mothers you know, to deliver in a, in a, in a health facility. So uh, a health worker was actually brought there. But this, this child died within hours. No one really knows why that child died. I mean, there could be any number of reasons. There was a kind of indifference. This woman showed me medicines which she had had to buy from outside. And she's supposed to get free medicines. When we were moving around in the village, we heard of, you know, many, many examples like that. And I think today's paper, or was it yesterday's, uh, talks about medicines, huge stocks of medicines. Uh, they've just found they were lying around in, in various towns. And many of these medicines were, for instance, for tuberculosis. Along with corruption, I think equally important is this complete callousness because these medicines, nobody, nobody used it. And, and this is a country where a lot of people, you know, they, they go bankrupt, you know, just paying their health bills because we don't have universal health care. The National Rural Health Mission had been assessed in 2010 by the Giri Institute of Development Studies in Uttar Pradesh's capital Lucknow. Here's the Institute's director, Professor A.J. Singh, on what they found. We looked at uh, a number of central schemes being operated in the state, but it was more based on the analysis of official records and data, not based on primary field surveys. But even then, we had a feeling that among the 14 uh, flagship schemes of Government of India, uh, this is one of the worst in terms of implementation. There are deficiencies in other programs also, but they were not so glaring. Initially, it took many years to take off. It was only after two, three years at first that uh, the utilization of funds increased. We also observed that uh, there is a great shortage of medical personnel at all levels, even if some physical infrastructure was put in place. The actual delivery of service could not take place. So our overall assessment was that uh, this uh, program needs to be geared up. But nobody suspected that on such a large scale, the funds will be 
siphoned off and not spent on the purpose for which they were meant. One can say it is an organised loot of public money. Many aspects of the complex scheme, such as purchasing medicines and contracting builders, meant money could be siphoned off through inflated or forged invoices. India's Central Bureau of Investigations, and also the country's chief auditor, are in the midst of looking into what happened. But there is a feeling corruption was rife all the way from the top to the bottom. There is a strong feeling and there's a strong suspicion that the political leadership is linked with the scandals. And and then once you have top-level leadership who are either turning a blind eye to corruption or are part of it, you know, that the bottom also feels very emboldened. So I think that's that's part of it because people people have got away for so long because they think they can get away. The investigations are still uh, on, so it's difficult to actually name names till final you know results are out. But you know, two ministers, including the state health minister, has been removed. Of course, they don't say that uh, you know it's because of the irregularities, but they have been uh, removed uh, after these irregularities uh, came to light, and a whole host of bureaucrats and you know other public officials. So how was this scam able to go undetected for six years? This shows that the system of monitoring which was put in place was inherently weak. And more emphasis was put on macro-aggregate indicators, how much money has been spent under what schemes. So that the state government was showing that funds are being utilised for this purpose, that purpose. But whether they were effectively used and what were the outcomes, there was no systematic manner of judging the outcomes. In case of our uh, universal education program, they have a more systematic uh, monitoring system. So if some field-based evaluation was put in place, then these things would have come to light much earlier Mm. and corrective action could have been taken. I would say it is a case of uh, human greed uh, and administrative failure. It's easy to fudge. You know, you can actually meet a lot of indicators. In the report I've written, the PHC which I visited, it had been upgraded recently, but not used. By the just the indicators, a lot of the times this kind of uh, corruption and this kind of negligence doesn't come through toilets which are not functioning and stuff like that. Now, those things don't usually come up in, in the kind of standardized, you know, evaluation forms which, which come up. You need a lot of field-level monitoring. The central uh, authorities, to a great extent, I would say that they needed to do a lot more, you know, um, on the monitoring front, because it was their money primarily. One is hoping, of course, that all this, you know, public airing of dirty linen and all the attention will eventually, you know, have some salutary effect. For instance, in NRHM, you know, there is a mechanism uh, for community monitoring. Uttar Pradesh government did not go in for that, but... I, like a lot of other people, are also hoping that eventually, you know, this this will strengthen the argument, you know, that you need a lot more monitoring, especially at the community level, and right through, you know, not just, you know, periodically. And you can read Pachalaka's full feature online on bmj.com. Now, Duncan Jarvis finds out how DFID deals with uncertainty.
In an article published last week on bmj.com, Eduardo Massey and colleagues carried out a systematic review of the effectiveness of agricultural interventions that aim to improve nutritional status of children. You can read their full results online, but in summary, they found that from the evidence collected, it was impossible to see if these interventions actually had an effect on the children they were aimed at. This research highlights the problem of a lack of evidence in developmental projects, and to discuss the results, I'm joined by Tim Wheeler, Professor of Crop Science at Reading University, and also Deputy Chief Scientific Advisor at DFID, the UK's Department for International Development. Thanks for joining us, Tim. You're welcome. Now, obviously, um, agricultural initiatives are just one part of DFID's work, but how important is that to what you do? I think it's reasonably important because we have quite good evidence that economies that pull themselves out um, from conditions of low economic growth usually do so by promoting and growing their agricultural sector. So for that reason, agriculture and the broader agriculture sort of food sector is a particularly key sector for international development actions. Now, obviously, this research paper being in the BMJ was looking at health outcomes. But are they the main focus of these, or is it that economic development that's more important? I think there's two main outcomes for most agricultural interventions. One is to boost the economic productivity of the agricultural sector. And that might involve, for example, establishing new value chains, um, getting produce to market in a more efficient and, uh, and, and reliable way. And so, in a sense, pulling the agricultural sector up by working across the sector. The other set of interventions is often to do with boosting productivity itself, so that that's more crops, heavier crops, more efficient livestock. And quite a number of new technologies that are produced in agricultural programs aim to boost productivity at the farm level. So this is quite, a, this is quite an unusual um, paper in a sense because it's looking at an intervention from a nutritional standpoint rather than an economic growth standpoint or from the standpoint of just boosting the productivity of the sector. And this paper looked through these studies and said that it was quite difficult, given the way they were done, to look at these kind of interventions and how effective they were. That lack of evidence isn't just in the sort of agricultural field. It must be elsewhere. So how does DFID work with this uncertainty? Well, I think, I mean, it, it is a problem, and it's one, I think, that we need to address head-on. I think there's a number of angles. Um, the first is, and I think this is where this study fits in, is we have to be as honest as we can with the underpinning evidence. So as we try to make our policy and our programs more evidence-based, we have to take a hard and rigorous look at the evidence and be quite honest when it's not good enough or not certain enough to make uh, precise decisions on. But then the second point is, of course, we do need to have some evidence base for decisions and it will never be perfect. So we need to develop the evidence in a way that we can make decisions. And we can do this in in one of three ways. This paper is an example of synthesizing the current evidence through systematic reviews, through evidence reviews and otherwise. We can commission new research to fill in the gaps that we need in evidence. And I think that this systematic review leads quite nicely, actually, to, to identifying some research to, to address these gaps in the nutritional interventions. Uh, and then lastly, we can evaluate our programs and our policy. So we can learn by doing almost 
So when decisions are made on um, evidence that's not uh, absolute or 100% decisive, we can actually evaluate carefully our programs and learn from them for future policy and program developments. So DFID gets its money from um, the government, so there is a sort of political dimension to this. Is the idea of, of taking very evidence-based approaches, interventions, gaining ground? It, it is very much so. We, we, we see this um, internationally. The increased um, uh, push, I guess, or drive towards more evidence-based decision-making. Uh, but your point is absolutely right. Um, there, there will always be room for a political decision, but our job really as providers of evidence is, is to get the evidence as robust as possible, although, as we've already discussed, it will never be absolutely perfect or 100%. Are there any areas that you think really require some concentration to get good evidence? I think one within the agricultural sector that, that often is discussed because it has a, a big public understanding of science dimension is the use of genetic modification for crop and livestock improvement. This is um, an example where there's some big potential gains in terms of the productivity of crops and animals to be made but it has to be made in a way that is, um, that is appropriately regulated, uh, the legislation is correct, and the safety in terms of both human and environmental dimensions have to be uh, nailed down as, or, or, or defined as, as closely as possible. Um, a particularly important issue, I think, as, as there is at the moment a lot of concern about how we're going to produce enough food under human-induced climate change, under a, a condition where over the coming decades the human population increases uh, and relies more and more on water and energy for its food production. So we need all these tools that science uh, can contribute, but at the same time we need to be absolutely certain and as we can be of, of the safety and efficacy of those new technologies. Absolutely, and you chose two examples there that are probably quite politically fraught, so extra important to get uh, good evidence to absolutely. support decisions. Yeah. Um, so DFID does have a, a, a raft of research it's, it's championing. How are you trying to improve this knowledge base, improve the quality of the science done and the breadth as well? Yeah, good, good, good question. I mean, it's, it's, it's really a raft of initiatives. DFID, although its research budget at, at the moment is, um, is growing slightly, it is only a small drop in the ocean in the international effort. And so working with other supporters of research, other donors internationally, is a, is a really big part of our day-to-day -day business. If we collectively, as a group of international donors, can bring more to bear on the research effort, then potentially there, there's some large gains out there. That's one part of it. The other part is, is this, this synthesis of evidence, this very close definition of what is needed. So where, where is the niche for research that's funded by DFID to, in, to enable us to make, to make some reasonably large gains? And one really important aspect of this is, is getting research findings out into practice. So do you think that there is some really good evidence that isn't informing policy as yet? I, I think that's always going to be the case. Quite often, decisions are being made on only part of the evidence. If we go back to the Masses and co-workers study, uh, if, if one were to take one of their nutrient intervention studies on its own and make a, a, some kind of a decision on that, then that would be quite different to the decision perhaps that you would make following this systematic, this formal review of all of the evidence. Mm. that essentially shows 
well, in this case, the deficiency of the evidence base, but I mean, it gives you more information because it's a wider sweep of the evidence base. Sure, absolutely. Now, to take an analogy from medicine, again, there's an increasing interest worldwide in comparative effectiveness research. Is there a movement like that in development? I, in general, I think it's not that well developed. Um, there are some real difficulties in terms of the location and the context. Um, in the agricultural sector, it is very difficult to make a like-for-like -like comparison in that way. For example, where we can easily do it, for example, is in improved crop varieties. We find that an improved crop variety, say a variety that will grow better under drought conditions, may well grow better in some locations, but you move it to another, a completely different farming system in a different part of the world, and then it won't be any better than what's normally grown. We call this the genotype times environment interaction. I mean, it is a very real barrier to those sort of generic um, um, recommendations within agriculture. So I suppose that goes back to the uh, the, the question I asked earlier about um, how differ deals with uncertainty. It is very much a, uh, well, this is the best that we can do in terms of decision making on the evidence we have available now. Let's do that, but at the same time, let's evaluate, let's monitor closely what we're doing, and then let's learn from doing some things in practice, as well as commissioning more research. Tim, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. That wraps it up for this week. Join us next week for more from the world of medicine. You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ.